Now, the one who protects us all from prattling prognosticators and perfidious pundits. I say, America, stay out the bushes. Look for the Union Navy. And to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. From my cold, dead hands. I'm concerned that if we don't impeach this president, he will get reelected. It's time for the Alan Nathan Show. Here he is, the longest-running nationally syndicated centrist host in the country, Alan Nathan. Welcome, one and all, to the Alan Nathan Show, where we want the Republicans out of our bedrooms, the Democrats out of our wallets, and both out of our First and Second Amendment rights. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan today. You can find my work at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. The Hill had a fascinating article that came out the other day. I am a great student of demographics and culture and so forth, so I immediately seized upon this and and looked it over with great interest when I saw this report. The report says that over 60% of young American men are single, and that's roughly twice the rate of single young women. Now, let's take a moment to roll that idea around in our heads for a bit. How can so many single young men be completely unattached? And how can so many more young men be unattached than young women? How is that possible? Who are the young women going out and getting attached to and married to and forming relationships with if 60% of the young men are sitting the game out, so to speak? And there is an answer. The, uh, the authors of the article do ask that question about halfway down. They finally get around to saying, uh, yeah, how's that possible? And they, they do go into it. But it's, it's an interesting and dismal statistic. I think it is a sign of considerable cultural decline. It's reversible. These things always are. Everything that seems like it's eternal and forever and there's no going back and you seem kind of depressed when you think about it, don't feel that way because these things do change. And sometimes they can change very quickly. A generation was ruined very quickly in the United States with political indoctrination, with cultural decay, uh, with a forceful effort to reprogram young people. And that's what this is. This is the result of a very deliberate, very focused, very targeted effort to reprogram young men and young women. And it didn't fail. It worked. This is what the people who did this to us wanted to happen. This is the world they were trying to create. But they did all this in eh, 20 years or so, 30 maybe, and it can be undone probably even faster than that if we get wise to what's happening to us and if we start resisting these efforts to reshape human nature and degrade human culture. So here you've got 60% of young women, uh, or young men rather, and they're single and they're, they're not going out with women. And the article at the Hill spends a bit of time talking to experts who all talk about how it's the young women uh, that are doing this. The young women have high standards. The young men are not meeting them. Uh, the young women don't want to be emotional wet nurses for these guys anymore. Like they're sick and tired of women being emotional support animals for their male counterparts. And they think the, the young men are not attractive. They're not serious. They're not good marriage prospects. They, they don't have jobs. They just sit around playing video games all day. They're not getting anything done and they're just not impressed with them in general. So you read all of this and then you come back to the headline fact that twice as many young men are single as young women. Well, if the young women are having all these problems, if they're the ones driving this and saying, we're not going to get into relationships we're not going to get married. Uh, we, we don't need this, but but they are. They're, they're just not getting into relationships with young men. So the authors do eventually get around to that and say, what's up? And their answer is twofold. They, they say, first of all, that some of the young women are dating each other. 
because homosexuality has absolutely gone nuclear in American culture over the last 20 years. And this is a fascinating statistic. Part of this report includes an estimate that roughly 20% of women under the age of 35, I think that's how they're defining a woman here. So say 20% of the women under 35 now identify as lesbian and bisexual. That's nuts. That, that's crazy. The, the number of actual lesbian and bisexual in this country, of homosexuals in general, was never more than about 1% of the population until a generation ago. And there were a lot of efforts to pump that number up over the years. Studies would come out and would attempt to claim that, no, 10%, 15% uh, is gay or lesbian and, and whatever, like the whole uh, group of, of people that are like that. And no, it, they could never get that number to work. It was always debunked. The studies were always torn apart. And it always kept coming back around to the real number being 1% to 5% or thereabouts of gay men and gay women. And here comes this study that says, as of today, 20% of women say that they're lesbian and bisexual and they're dating each other because they've had it up to here with their dating prospects with young men. If that is true, and you always have to wonder about a poll and how accurate it is, so let's get that out of the way. But if that is true, that means the number of people who identify as lesbians has skyrocketed by tenfold or more over the past generation. And that is done deliberately. That's indoctrination. That's how you get there. Human nature didn't change. The biology didn't change. This is people being convinced that they're going to start identifying that way. And by doing so, they are removing themselves from the dating pool and from the breeding pool, which is what the real objective here always was. This is to get people to stop having children and stop getting married young. So it worked. So after considering the possibility that a lot of young women are dating each other because they've had it to, up to here with these useless young men, then the article hits what is probably the more important factor in young single manhood exploding and says that young women are now just looking for older men. So that, that's a big part of it. And the, the rest of the article basically talks about that, how young women are going out and looking for older, successful guys, and that's who they want to get married to and have a relationship with. So if you're a 20-something woman, you look around at the 20-something men, you go, Bleh, I don't want any piece of this drama. And you go out and you find some guy in his 40s who's stable and knows who he is and, and has a good job. Uh, okay, I can see that. That makes sense. And I'm sure in your life, you might have met people who have done this. But what does that really mean? Well, that means that a whole generation of young men have been ruined. And contrary to the premise of the article, which tries to make the case that women's tastes have changed and they want something different now. No, they don't. They want the 40-year-old guy. They, they want the old guy. They want original Coke. They want the older formula of a man, and they're going out and finding men who meet that original formula, who are not emotional wrecks, who are not hopeless neurotics, who are not trying to be feminists, who are not steeped in the 57 genders, who are not sitting in their mom's basement all day collecting stimulus benefits and playing video games. They want to go out and find the old-fashioned guys. That's what's still in vogue. That's what this is. This story is literally telling you. I think the people who wrote the story didn't really want to come to that conclusion, so they they float some other theories. But that's the bottom line. You know, the dating pool has come apart in a bad way, and it's because the new generation of young men that has risen up over the last twenty years or so is no longer doing the things that older generations of young men did that attracted women. And meanwhile, young women are being told not to get married, not to have relationships when they're young, to put it off for a long time, get your career in order, you know, don't tie yourself down, don't be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. And then once you're successful and squared away and you've got everything you want, 
then maybe you can think about having a designer baby. And 10, 15 years ago, there were a bunch of polls that said that, that they talked to women and they said, that's, that's what I want in my life. I'm going to build my career. I'm going to make my million. And then maybe when I'm 40 and the clock is running down, I'll have one designer kid and I'll get married uh, to raise him. And that'll be my perfect little life. And that was what so many people said, you know, 15 years ago, but that isn't what they did. What they're actually doing, according to the results of this survey, is they're giving up on young men in their 20s and saying, oh, these putzes aren't going to be husband material. These guys aren't going to be good fathers. I don't want to get married to you know, some guy that's never going to work, and I'm going to have to support him and emotionally sustain him. And they go out and they find an old-fashioned guy from the previous generation who has made it and has his own house and his car and his bank account is solid, and they get married to that guy when they're still relatively young. So, I mean, I think there's a little biology here. There's human nature in play. None of this should be surprising. I think most women listening to all of this and, and pondering it themselves will say this all sounds perfectly reasonable to them. It's, it's easy to see why young women are coming to these conclusions. But these changes were forced on us. Human nature didn't change, but culture changed. Education changed. Kids were told, beginning a generation or so ago, 20, 30 years thereabouts, that having children when you're young is sinful because the earth is overcrowded, it's dying. So if you go out and have a big family, that's you're gonna kill the earth. So you don't wanna do that. And dutifully, they would run polls and all these college students of the 2000s and 2010s would say, oh, no, no, I'm not gonna have kids because the earth is dying. And how can I bring another carbon spewing life form into this, this wicked, wretched, wrecked world? That was a big factor with these kids. They've all been programmed with environmentalist doomsday garbage and they all think the earth is gonna die in 10 years and they're just making it worse by putting another mouth to feed on the planet. So they, they stopped getting married. Then they got hit with gay, lesbian, transsexual indoctrination. And part of that is telling these kids, explicitly telling these kids, that normal sexuality is wrong. You're inferior if you're a straight kid. If you're a straight white kid, you know, whatever the, the new hate object is. But if you're a straight kid, there's something wrong with you. You should have your head examined. That's, that's not the, the way the cool kids are. The cool kids are all gender fluid now. And that peer pressure had a tremendous effect on a whole generation of young men and young women. So here comes this poll and they, they look at who the young men are and that's 60% of them. They're not getting in a relationship. They're not even trying to get married. They're not even thinking about it. They don't have a, a significant other in their lives at all. They're hanging out in mom's house and they, they play Xbox all day and maybe they're, they've got a job, maybe they don't. Uh, unemployment and dissatisfaction and happiness are skyrocketing. We have huge problems with substance abuse, with people saying that they're unhappy and younger and younger people saying that they're unhappy and filled with despair. Suicide rates have been pretty bad ever since the pandemic. It all adds up to a sense that a whole generation has been aggressively programmed to reject human nature and the things that we have known for millennia make people happy and fulfilled and they're trying a new lifestyle and it's not working and the people who created it knew it wouldn't work this is what they wanted i'm john hayward sitting in for alan today we'll be right back with more of the alan nathan show according to the new state of security preparedness 2023 study released by avanti approximately half of respondents said they are very prepared to meet the growing threat landscape but expected safeguards are ignored a third of the time and leaders are actually four times more likely to be victims of phishing compared to office workers avanti ceo jeff abbott Devonti surveyed 6,500 executive leaders, cybersecurity professionals, and office workers globally to understand the perception of today's cybersecurity threats and to find out how companies are preparing for next generation cyber terror threats. 
The overwhelming majority of security professionals and leaders, 97%, told us their organizations are as prepared or more prepared today than one year ago. However, the threat of the unknown is as real as ever. In fact, only one in five of those same cybersecurity professionals would wager a chocolate bar on the state of their readiness. To learn more, visit Ivanti.com slash cybersecurity report. It has been over 30 years since Hurricane Andrew devastated South Florida. That storm marked the beginning of the Home Depot being a hub for help during disasters, a tradition that continues today. To commemorate those efforts, the company is releasing a new film called Hope Bills. Briar Waterman, Senior Director, Creative Design of the Home Depot. Drawing from interviews and using archive footage, we trace the origin, growth, and sophistication of the Home Depot's disaster relief efforts, demonstrating it is deeply connected to the values of the company and our unwavering support to our communities during their times of need. Whether it be a veteran in need or a community devastated by a natural disaster, Home Depot associates go beyond the job, beyond the nine to five, to make sure that their neighbors and communities are taken care of. This documentary is a prime example. To learn more about the film or for help creating your emergency supply kit, visit your local Home Depot or thehomedepot.com slash hopebills. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jason Derulo. I love that music connects to people all over the country. But unfortunately, so does something else. Childhood hunger. 15 million kids struggle with hunger right here in America. And yet, every year, billions of pounds of surplus food in the U.S. go to waste instead of going to the children in need. Feeding America is working to change this. The Feeding America nationwide network of food banks rescues this surplus of food to help provide meals to families in virtually every community in the United States, including yours. But they just can't do this alone. Join me in the fight against hunger in America. For more information on what you can do to get involved, Visit feedingamerica.org. That's feedingamerica.org. Together we can solve hunger. Together we're feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. What is dedication? I am the father of a nine-year-old little girl and a six-year-old little boy. And I find fatherhood both relentlessly challenging and relentlessly rewarding. My daughter is biological and my son is adopted. I love them both so much. From the morning when you wake up to putting them to bed at night and every moment in between, it really is so special. And boy, is it exhausting. One thing that I fear about being a parent is the future for my children. I think a parent's job is to protect our children, but also prepare them for the world so they become good, kind human beings. But I'm also hopeful that the future holds a more inclusive and compassionate world for them. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor over at Breitbart News. You can find me at Breitbart.com and on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. What is fascism? Everybody knows it's bad. Everybody knows fascist governments do horrible things. But what is it really? What defines fascism? Well, the core definition of a fascist system is that capital, money, industry is privately owned but controlled by politicians. 
the political party, the ruling party, tells the people who own capital what to do, and they must obey, but they're still the owners. And if they disobey, there are various ways in which they will be punished. I therefore give you environmental, social, and governance investing. This is a new brainchild of the left that has been cooked up over the past decade or so. And the idea, and the Biden administration is, is hugely into this, they're, they're pushing this really hard, is that the ruling party, the Democratic Party, will tell private investors what they must invest in. And they must invest in companies that meet certain political standards, that are in tune with the environment, that are one with the earth, that are believers in social justice. And if you if you invest your money in those companies as the party directs, then you will be rewarded. And if you refuse to invest your money in those companies the party approves of, then you're in trouble and there will be penalties. Once again, this is the working definition of fascism. And here it is, red in tooth and claw, courtesy of Joe Biden. Now here with us to talk about the ESG program and the Biden administration's big push for it is Akash Chaguli, Vice President at Americans for Prosperity. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show. Thanks for having me on. How are you? Yeah, you're welcome. I wanted to get the big word out of the way because I, I, I can't stress to people enough that this is exactly the operational principle of a fascist government. And that's exactly what this is. The ruling party is going to lay out some investment guidelines. They have nothing to do with making money for your shareholders. They have nothing to do with the prosperity of your company or why is fiscal stewardship. It's all about investing only in companies that the party has decided are politically pure. And you'll be rewarded if you do that. How is this not a four alarm fire? for everybody that claims to be opposed to fascism. It absolutely should be. And that's why our organization, Americans for Prosperity, we're a nationwide grassroots group. We're launching a major campaign this week in key Senate states, key House districts, because the Senate this week will vote on overturning President Biden's rule. Now, the great thing about this vote that's going to take place in the Senate this week, it only needs 51 votes to pass, and it already has Joe Manchin on board. So we only need one more Democratic senator to vote to overturn this rule. Of course, it's going to, you know, at some point pass the Republican-led House of Representatives. But on the substance, John, to your point, Americans are fed up with the politicization of everything, as I like to call it. There is nothing, there is not a better example of that than this, injecting the president and the Democratic Party's political priorities into your retirement funds. People's retirements have already taken a beating over the last year or two. And now the president is pushing a rule that's going to allow fund managers to consider political goals rather than just return on investment for those same retirement funds. People are having to delay retirement. Their 401ks have taken a beating. And now here comes the president and the Department of Labor saying, you need to consider my, quote, environmental social governance, a.k.a. my political ideological goals in those investments instead of the well-being of retirees and the return on their investments. Something tells me everybody would get this point much faster if we were dealing with a Republican administration and they were rolling out a program to force companies to invest only in uh, believers in traditional family values, you know, and, and, the, and the First Amendment and the Second Amendment and stuff like that. Then everybody would immediately be howling to high heaven that this is Hitler reborn. But because it's left wing groups and the left wing agenda, then we're supposed to just accept it. This is such an important point, right? And it goes to, again, the politicization of everything, right? The mainstream media, if this were a Republican administration saying you must invest in, in gun companies and oil and gas companies and, and those that uphold traditional family values, people would rightfully be howling, right? My retirement savings, a worker's pension, it should not be of any kind of relevance what the political values of that company are, what their environmental, social governance metric scores are 
on some made up scale that, that um, you know, some agency came up with. The only thing that matters is the return on investment so people can retire and live with dignity from the money they've saved and invested over years and years and years. These ESG metrics inject politics into a place where it has absolutely no business. And that's why we're calling on Americans all across the country to join us at Americans for Prosperity. Take action. Contact your senator because we absolutely can defeat this thing. Get this to President Biden's desk and make him defend the fact that he's politicizing 401k investments that have already lost 43 percent of their value in the year 2022. People are getting absolutely crushed. And here he comes trying to politicize their retirement even further. This also seems like a weird time to try to convince people that the almighty state and its ruling party are the greatest and wisest investors in the world because everything they do is an abject disaster. We just came out of the coronavirus disaster, and before that we had the endless disasters of the Obama administration, one big government face plan after another, Obamacare. Every time Washington takes a step, it steps on a rake and gets a rake right in the face. And those same people turn around and say, oh no, we're the we're the wisest, smartest investors in the world. We're going to tell you who you can invest your retirement fund in because we know what's going on. It's going to be another disaster. Well, and here's the thing. If you think your 401k manager is doing a bad job, what do you do? You take your money away and you give this to somebody else. When Washington bureaucrats get involved, there's no accountability, right? It's not, they don't care that, you know, sort of what happens to your retirement income and your investments. What they care about, to your point, is advancing this political ideological agenda. And so while you and I might consider it to be stepping on a rake, that people's 401ks have lost 43% of their value and are going to take another beating if this rule goes into place, the bureaucrats and the Biden administration will say, no, this is good. We don't care about the return. We care about advancing these political goals. And so it really is just a complete detachment from the priorities of the American people. And, and, and I would emphasize, this isn't just another political crisis, right? This isn't just the administration stepping on a rake. There are real consequences to this when you look at One, inflation has already driven up costs and hurt people living on fixed incomes. Two, their 401ks have already taken an absolute beating because the market has has declined so much over the last year or two. And now, three, here they come injecting politics into it. There are retired people or people who have been planning for retirement who now might end up having to work another two, three, four, five years who are planning to retire with dignity who are now not able to. The president is exacerbating some really serious economic harm particularly for older Americans who are looking forward to retiring around this time. We've been talking about deplatforming and debanking a lot on the show lately, and this is another example of this, because if you turn it around, the message is going out to companies that if you want to be eligible for these investments and you want a piece of this financial action, you had better get your political credentials right and start believing in the right things and join the ESG bandwagon, or you might as well go pound sand. Yeah, and this is another really important point. I'm glad you brought this up, John, is that people, understandably conservatives, they see companies doing a lot of this sort of progressive activism and ESG and all this. Uh, and, you know, sometimes they're doing this on their own volition. And frankly, if a private company wants to make a business decision, they're free to do so. But so often the real force behind this is coming from the government. Companies are being either coerced, forced, or intimidated into doing a lot of this stuff, whether it's ESG metrics, or it's, you know, affirmative action or whatever the case might be that looks like it's a company making a bad decision or advancing some sort of some kind of progressive priority. More often than not, John, it is some kind of government regulator, government enforcer, government agency behind the scenes pushing them to do this. And that's why votes like this vote to overturn the ESG rule and rein in the bureaucracy are so important. 
Absolutely, and there are so many other areas of our life that we're going to get a taste of this in in years to come, like the so-called electric car revolution, which is not really about public demand because nobody wants electric cars, but they're going to collude with car companies and force you to buy electric cars because nothing else is going to be on the market. Stand up against this stuff now or get ready for a pretty dark future. Akash Chaguli, Vice President at Americans for Prosperity, thanks very much for joining us. I'm John Hayward, your guest host today. We will be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. make sure that we don't overfeed our animals because feeding our animals more is not love you know there's so many other ways you can show love like throwing a ball and walking them and give them a little extra love the annual end obesity campaign by heels is wonderful for a guy like me and dr hodges who are practicing veterinarians because it's obesity like you said is one of those um, illnesses or conditions that we see most in the veterinary hospital. And it can be very difficult sometimes talking to clients about, you know, their patient being obese, you know. But HEALS with their campaign have given us the tool to be able to get this message across. And it's something that they do annually. They've invested a lot of time, a lot of money into the research, into the pet food that we can use to help these animals that are obese. So you can go to inpetobesity.com and you can learn a whole lot more about how you can actually use the love test as well as learn more about Hills Pet Nutrition and ways to control your pet's weight. Hi there, it's Joe Montana. Life after football has been full of taking my shot at new things. Now I'm working with Pfizer to tell you about pneumococcal pneumonia. Pneumococcal pneumonia should be the last thing standing in your way. Pneumococcal pneumonia is a potentially serious bacterial lung disease that can strike any time of year. It can disrupt your life for weeks, and in severe cases, it can put you in the hospital and even be life-threatening. And Joe knows that vaccination is one of the best ways to help protect himself from pneumococcal pneumonia. If you're 65 or older or 19 or older with certain underlying medical conditions like asthma, COPD, chronic heart disease, or diabetes, Talk to your doctor or pharmacist about the risk of pneumococcal pneumonia and whether vaccination is right for you. Understand your risk at KnowPneumonia.com. That's K-N-O-W pneumonia.com. This is your shot. This message is brought to you by Pfizer. You know that feeling? Like every door is closing and you just can't see a way out? Being unemployed underemployed, or just out of school feels a lot like that. But when you find the right tools, suddenly, everything just clicks. Getting on that path may be easier than you think. A good place to start? Go to findsomethingnew.org. At findsomethingnew.org, you have access to resources that help develop new skills. Skills that will position you for careers in today's growing industries. From healthcare and manufacturing to cybersecurity and alternative energy. Plus, you can take advantage of online courses, certification programs, apprenticeships, and more. So you can take yourself from unemployed and uncertain to empowered and prepared for what's next. Find your path to a new career today. Visit findsomethingnew.org. A message from the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. <laughs> I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! 
cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny. When I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Blowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes. When we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM, so can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message from the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan while he's on assignment. You can find my work at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. Well, the new Republican chair of the uh, House Judiciary Committee, Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio, has fired off a spread of subpoena torpedoes out to the CEOs of various big tech companies, Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and he's telling them they're going to have to come in and provide documents and testimony to explain how and why they moderated and deleted content. In other words, why did they throttle free speech? Conspicuously missing from that list of subpoenas is Twitter. And presumably that's because it has a new owner, Elon Musk, and it's working on cleaning up its act. But maybe Twitter shouldn't get a pass on this. And maybe it's time to bring the people who were doing Twitter content moderation. After all, they were responsible for one of the most egregious attacks on free speech and valid information in recent memory, the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story, which was absolutely 100 percent true. But it was treated like disinformation and forced off Twitter. And that had real consequences in the last election. Here with us to talk about the subpoenas and holding big tech accounts is Dan Schneider, Vice President of the Media Research Center's Free Speech America. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show, sir. Hey, John. Good to be with you. Well, I saw your article that you had at Fox News about this, and I saw that Twitter is, is not on the list of subpoenas, and you, you think it ought to be. I also think they ought to come in and answer some questions. I'm not completely convinced they've totally turned over a new leaf yet, whether or not Elon Musk himself wants to, but they certainly should answer for what they've done in the past so that we can gain a fuller understanding of how this happened, shouldn't they? Yeah, and uh, you mentioned that Jim Jordan has these subpoenas out because he wants to find out why the Hunter Biden laptop story was suppressed and all that. Well, I've got the short answer for that. It's because big tech wanted to install Joe Biden as president, and they did everything they could working with the legacy media to to silence conservatives, to silence real stories that would look bad for Joe Biden and uh, and get Donald Trump out of office. That's why they did it. Um, and, and but that's Twitter probably not what they're the going to say. <laughs> that's not what they're going to well, say when they come into the hearing room, is it? 
Well, look, uh, you know, these big tech oligarchs, and that's what they are. You know, the, the, you know, Apple, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon, these are the four largest corporations in world history. Never before has the world ever seen private power held to such an extreme degree. Apple alone, its, its market capitalization is larger than every single European country except for three. This one corporation is bigger than all European countries except for three. And, and these four giant behemoths, they dwarf uh, the European Union in size and power. You know, the, the, and, and look, they've got a twisted worldview and an agenda that matches their worldview. And they are out to destroy the very idea of America. They need to be called in and they need to be held to account. And this is a really disturbing, I think, part of a growing way in which the government and the ruling party, really, it's not just the government, it's the Democrat Party is sort of the permanent ruling party in the country. And they're using this corporate muscle to get beyond their limits of power in so many ways. The Constitution says they can't restrict free speech. Well, fine, they'll just bring in their pals over at Twitter and Facebook and Google, and they'll cut free speech for them. And the First Amendment doesn't even come into play. Ha ha, take that, constitutionalists. And they're doing this with debanking, deplatforming. They're going after people in so many ways now using private sector muscle to do things the government is not allowed to do. This has to be stopped. Yeah, I think the best thing that has come from the Twitter files release is that Americans are finally understanding that big tech is not threat. that big tech is out to destroy them. Now, it's, you know, Google Maps and Apple App Store and Apple phones and, you know, all these conveniences. They're nice. But it was you know, less than 10 years ago that big tech suddenly decided they didn't want to simply be in the product service uh, business, that they wanted to actually be in the dictating what society is going to look like business. And they are trying to clamp down on everything that is good and holy. Um, and they, they are essentially substituting themselves for God. Uh, and that may sound like a bizarre statement, but they're the ones who are determining what truth is, transcendent truth. And if you don't believe in their version of transcendent truth, then you're going to go to their form of purgatory and hell. You know, the, these are the big tech oligarchs, and they want to dominate our lives. Oh, and they don't want to persuade you. They just want to make sure you don't hear anybody that disagrees with them, which is funny for me to see because I grew up in the uh, 80s reading all these cyberpunk science fiction novels about how evil corporations were going to take over the, the future through the Internet. And they were right. It's just that it turned out the evil corporations are all left wingers working for the Democratic Party. They're not a bunch of cigar puffing fat cats that are in league with some kind of caricature of big business conservatives. They're all lefty radicals. Yeah. So, John, I've read your stuff for a long time. I know you're you're excellent at what you do. Maybe you can help me. I understand this. I am not sure which is the head and which is the tail. Is it big tech doing the, the, the bidding of the Democrat Party or is it the Democrat Party doing the, the bidding of big tech? I frankly can't figure out who's in charge. They both. And by the way, when I say Democrat Party, what I really mean is the current radicalized leadership. Of the Democrat Party, not your your average you know guy who belongs to a union, you know in in Michigan, but the radicalized leadership controlling the Democrat Party today. I just don't know who's in charge, big tech or or that radicalized leadership. 
Well, isn't that one of the, the great things about having a party is that you don't really have to say. You get to do presto changeo. You get to have revolving doors. People are in government one day, and then they're in a big corporation the next day, and then they're back in the government the day after that, and they're always loyal to the party, but they can dip in and out of the government at will as needed in order to enrich themselves, but also to continue wielding whatever kind of power the party needs them to wield. Yeah. Yeah. And what's sad is that all of that power is being uh, used against the American public, against people who just want to live decent lives and have a country based on the rule of law, where we respect individual liberty and national sovereignty, and where we live in a pluralistic way where, you know, I don't get my way all the time and you don't get your way all the time because we have to live in a world where, you know, I'm not the king, I'm not the ruler. But Democrat, the Democrat leadership today, they are getting rid of that whole system. It's just my way or the highway. Yeah, and this may sound – people may have already forgotten. Nancy Pelosi has implemented proxy voting in the U.S. House of Representatives when she was Speaker. So the, you know, the people you – know, whoever you thought was representing you in Congress, forget about it. It was Nancy Pelosi who was representing you in Congress because every Democrat had to give their – essentially had to give their votes to her. So she cast their votes on – their behalf. Nancy Pelosi of San Francisco was really the representative for most of Americans when she was the speaker. Now, you mentioned in your op-ed a, a little skepticism that hearings are going to be the answer to this because you remember very well how hearings were held about the IRS scandal and about all these other abuses of power about Benghazi. And every time the Republicans had the authority to hold hearings on these things, the Democrats just put on their clown noses and their purple wigs and they ride around in little unicycles and toot horns and they turn the hearings into a circus and nothing happens. The, the whole media storyline is there was a hearing and it was just a disaster and nothing got done. And then nothing ever changes. Is that going to happen again, or are the public's ever going to get better at running these hearings and getting somewhere? Um, of course, I don't have a crystal ball. That's why uh, I wrote this op-ed, because uh, we cannot have a situation like uh, we did. You, you mentioned the IRS scandal, where Lois Lerner, this individual you know, at the IRS, was shutting down conservative not-for-profits all by herself. Um, but only after having attended a couple meetings with Barack Obama, who you know, undoubtedly said, hey, Lois, it'd be a shame if some of these conservative groups didn't exist any longer. You know, I'm sure she didn't get direct instructions from Barack Obama, but she got the message, and she started shutting these organizations down. We had lots of hearings, but guess what? Lois Lerner never paid a price for, for her horrible, horrible authoritarian conduct. The Benghazi and, and neither- went on and on and on. And, and, and neither did Barack got, Obama. And right, they, no, nobody paid a price for it. And and you know, it's one thing when a not-for-profit in Texas, you know, goes under because of horrible abuse. It's another thing if our entire country goes under because big tech is swallowing us whole. We cannot allow big tech to destroy our lives and our country. And it's too important because we need these resources. We can't put the genie back in the bottle. We can't take away the Internet and social media. Nobody really wants to. It's too important. And we'd be putting ourselves at a gigantic competitive disadvantage with the world if we just got rid of social media because it can't be trusted or, or any such thing. So we need this to function. We just need it to function fairly. And it is so hard to see how to get there from here without transgressing the First Amendment and ordering these companies to behave in a way that the new ruling party of the Congress wants it to do. 
Yeah, you know, it, it comes back to the actual goals of these big tech companies. If all they did was provide the services, the products that, that is written in their SEC filings, that'd be great. We could enjoy you know, our, our apps and everything like that. They've got to stop nation building, society building. They've got to get back in their lane. I really hope we can get them there, and maybe these next few years we'll have some pleasant surprises as well as unpleasant ones, because there's another election coming right around the corner. Dan Schneider, Vice President of the Media Research Center's Free Speech America, thanks for joining us. I'm John Hayward, sitting in for Alan today. We'll be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. Sponsored by IBM. IBM is transforming how it engages with business partners through the launch of IBM Partner Plus, a single integrated program to help deepen partners' technical expertise, accelerate time to market, and win with clients. New and existing partners will experience a transparent, simple, and modern program anchored around three pillars, competitive incentives, insider access, and enhanced support and benefits. Partners can grow skills, develop solutions, and build sales expertise using IBM technology. Kate Woolley, General Manager, IBM Ecosystem. We are introducing IBM Partner Plus, a new program built hand-in-hand with our partners to help them gain skills, grow faster, and earn more. By offering access to the same education, programs, and hands-on training that IBMers get, we are better equipping partners to bring the power of AI and hybrid cloud to our clients. For more information, visit ibm.com slash partner plus. The pandemic is just one factor that forced companies to rethink the way they conduct business. In addition to remote employees, companies are uploading more data to the cloud and workers are using a wide variety of apps and devices. As a result, businesses are more susceptible to security breaches than ever before. For 10 years, the open directory platform provider JumpCloud has helped businesses improve security and minimize vulnerability. Security continues to be a top concern for businesses. According to JumpCloud Vice President Eric Brown, organizations need to reconsider their approach. Identity is the new center of IT and the foundation around which all IT infrastructure should be built. That's where we at JumpCloud come in. We help companies and people make work happen with secure, frictionless access to the apps and data they need with an open directory platform designed for identity transformation. To learn how JumpCloud can help your business, visit JumpCloud.com. My name is Judy Teeter, and I'm the mother of three boys. My youngest, Joe, was a great kid. He loved sports, music, and his youth group. One day, Joe asked me to drive him to an after-school event, which was about a mile from our home. I was driving through a green light when a car in cross-traffic ran a red light and drove right into the side of our car killing Joe. The driver was talking on her phone, so she never even saw the red light. She was so absorbed in her phone call. Before the crash, I didn't realize just talking on a cell phone while driving was so dangerous. Now it's something I think about every day. According to the National Safety Council, about one in four car crashes involves a cell phone. Hands-free is no safer. When you're behind the wheel, put away your phone. For Joe and for the thousands of needless deaths every year, remember... There is no safe way to talk on a cell phone while driving. Find out more at nsc.org slash callskill. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? 
by their clothes, their age, the way they speak? Would you notice a 16-year-old boy who got his first job, not for extra spending money, but to help feed his little sisters? Or a mother who's in between jobs and sometimes goes to bed hungry so her kids can have dinner? Or a 14-year-old girl who signs up to every after-school activity not to make friends, but just to get something to eat? Or a retiree who fell ill and had to choose between getting medicine or groceries? I am the one in eight Americans who struggle with hunger. People you pass by every day but never knew were hungry. I am hunger in America. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong, and the Ad Council. The mission of Paralyzed Veterans of America is clear. Accessibility. Veterans who have served and sacrificed the best of themselves deserve access to the best our country has to offer. Access to meaningful employment. Access to the veterans' benefits they've earned. Accessible homes and vehicles. And access to every part of their communities. With PVA staff working inside VA hospitals, no other veterans organization has provided more real-time Ongoing support for paralyzed veterans and their families. PVA is proud to serve veterans across all branches, all generations, and all conflicts. Our nation's heroes fought for your independence. Join PVA in fighting for theirs at pva.org. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor over at Breitbart News. You can find my work at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. Well, the Gallup polling organization has a new analysis of polls out there, and it concludes that a healthy majority of Americans do not support race and ethnicity being used in college admissions. They are opposed to racial and ethnic quotas for college admissions. And then the very same poll analysis turned around and said that 58% of them support programs whose goals is to increase the racial diversity of college campuses, which is a little bit like saying 62% of Americans oppose obesity, but 58% of them like eating pizza three times a day. It's kind of hard to reconcile those two uh, polling outcomes into anything like a cogent policy position. Here the discussion the poll with us is Michael Chapman, Managing Editor at CNS News. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show, sir. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me on. I don't see how you square the circle, and I don't think the poll respondents are really thinking all that hard about it either, but you've got roughly the same percentage of people that are all in favor of artificially increasing the diversity of students on campuses because they're saying they support programs that will do that, but then the same percentage of people roughly says we don't like racial quotas for college admissions. I can guarantee you that the power structure in this country sees no other way to increase diversity than quotas. No, that's essentially correct. Uh, they looked at several polls, uh, including one of their own, and one of the polls goes back to 2016, but some are more recent. And uh, they all show that Americans, by and large, um, um, support the idea of having a very diverse uh, student body, um, but they do not like the idea of using race as a factor in uh, college admissions. So, so how do you get there? And that's something that um, 
the schools are going to have to look at if, if they want to pursue this um, uh, goal of, of reaching some sort of uh, balance, however they see it, uh, among their student body. And, and one of the things that motivated uh, Gallup uh, to put these polls together and look at them uh, at this time is because the uh, U.S. Supreme Court in October of 2022 uh, heard two cases. One is against Harvard University and its race-based admissions policies, and one is against uh, the University of North Carolina. And from everything I've read and uh, from the arguments of the court, um, most people believe that the Supreme Court is going to strike down the um, race-based admissions uh, that Harvard and UNC are using. Um, Now, they say they don't use race as a factor, that they take this holistic approach um, and look at a variety of factors. Um, But the way it's being implemented, it looks like the court is going to say you can't you can't continue doing what you're doing. So that's one of the main reasons Gallup started pushing this uh, topic at this time, because uh, they're going to continue to follow it. in as the court comes out with its decision, but it is, it is one of those uh, perplexing things, which I, I sort of find that Americans are sort of like that. Sometimes we want, we want the ultimate goal that looks really good. Um, but how do you get there? And um, I think you get there by, um, accepting people on their merits uh, and what they're qualified and potentially capable of accomplishing at those schools. Because as the data show, and a lot of folks, economists and education writers like Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams have written about this for decades, is that with affirmative action at the colleges, you accept, you try to pull in a lot of um, minority uh, students who are just not qualified for that school. And I'm talking about the top, top schools, you know, maybe the top 25 in the country. But they've also found that if you if you try to match these students with the school, with, with the academic scores, they had the test scores and the academic work that they've done, if you try to match them uh, as best as you can, you know, high school, college advisors and others, that they, they, they succeed. They do very well. So, if, if you just let everybody in by merit, you're going to have a, a large, larger percentage of Asian Americans, for example, who do extremely well uh, with the testing and the academics. You're going to have a smaller number, slightly, of uh, white Anglo-Saxon European uh, students and a smaller percentage of um, Hispanics and blacks. But there, there are very, very talented students across the board who can succeed at these very elite schools. It's just not as large a proportion as, as the powers that be in the, in the diversity quota people would like to see happen. And so they're going to have, if the court strikes this down, they're going to have to look at other ways to try to, um, to bring in the, the, the number of students that they think they need to have uh, to reach that goal. Um, I think but part the of the problem it, here, the, the schools sorry, you're talking ahead. about, the, these elite schools that, that we're talking about, I think part of the problem is that very notion of an elite school, that we're not just talking about making sure everybody gets a quality education. That would be much easier to do. But we're talking about making sure the right number of persons of color get into these elite institutions whose degrees are automatically worth more than a very good education from another school would be. And if you go to a more merit-based process, you're going to have the elites, the Harvards, the Yales, whatever, are going to be full of Asians and white people. And that's just not going to 
to be acceptable to the diversity mavens, even if we're getting good schools out there for minority kids. We're just that whole idea is just off the table as far as they're concerned. Uh, for them, it is. But obviously, with the American people, uh, it's not off the table. And if the Supreme Court strikes it down, they're going to have to look at at new ways of trying trying to achieve that goal. It, it's interesting. If you look at the data, though, for example, Thomas Sowell looked at uh, University of California, Berkeley, you know, one of the one of the top schools that people like to get into out there. And he looked at 70 uh, percent of the. Uh, the students who were in the in the diverse crowd, the black students and the Hispanic students, and um, who got into Berkeley, um, and uh, they ended up dropping out. Um, there are only a small percentage of them that that stayed in Berkeley because they weren't up to speed with the academic uh, uh, structure and uh, criteria for the school, and so these affirmative action programs end up hurting. Um, a lot of these students that they want to help promote or support or, or, or give an, a, an extra hand up um, in their academic career and then and in their uh, civil career. Um, so I don't uh, I don't know what else to say about that, except I think it's a healthy sign that Americans don't support. A large majority of Americans do not support uh, using race uh, as a factor. Uh, it's certainly in line with what uh, Martin Luther King said. Um, and it's these, it's like you said, it's these, uh, elite smug elites at some of these schools who are, who are pushing this. And I think it, there hasn't been a time I can remember in my life when racial quotas actually had majority support. I can never remember a poll or a poll analysis that said 70% of Americans support racial quotas. They always say they oppose them. But I think one of the other ways they square the circle is that they think there are artificial barriers to students of color getting into these institutions, and they're all in favor of removing those. So I think they need to understand more about how this stuff is working. Michael Chapman, Managing Editor at CNS News, thanks for joining us. I'm John Hayward your guest host today. Thanks for joining us on this hour of the Alan Nathan Show. The opinions you hear on the Main Street Radio Network are those of the host, callers, and guests, and not necessarily those of the station, Main Street Radio Network, its management, or advertisers. The information on the Main Street Radio Network does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or securities. So please, consult a professional before investing. If you have any questions or comments about Main Street Radio Network, contact us at 703-719-0433 or at our website, MainStreetRadioNetwork.com.